Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk, Monitoring the Hypothermic Casualty. How we prevent or manage hypothermia is a vitally important factor in our aim of maximising survival and minimising suffering. But how we monitor this condition accurately can be a challenge, especially in the austere environment. To talk to us through this important subject today is Abrick O'Kelly. Abrick has a wealth of experience in pre-hospital medicine and has recently provided excellent guidance on how we can achieve this successful monitoring. So good, good afternoon, Abrick. It's uh, fantastic to, to have you on TSG Talk. How are you doing today? Uh, doing well. Thank you for the kind invitation. It's good to be here. No, it's an absolute pleasure and it's, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you along and I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, just really learning more about the subject and, and some of the solutions you've got to, to really, really move forward how we, we, we address monitoring hyperthermia. But before we actually go into the subject tonight, could you, you just um, tell our listeners a little bit about um, your own background and experience and, and then maybe a little bit more specifically how you got into the, you know, a, a bit more of the detail of the hyperthermia work that you've, you've been doing? I, I am a former U.S. Army Green Beret. I, um, I got two passports, Irish and, and U.S., so I decided to go to the U.S. side for the military experience. And I uh, spent 10 years as a Green Beret on the ODAs there. And I, after uh, that, I popped over to the, back to this side of the pond, and I started a nonprofit called the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. We're based in Malta. We're a degree-granting institution. We've got doctorates and master's and and bachelor's degrees focusing on austere medicine and the practice of healthcare in difficult environments. And we, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to improve outcomes in the remote and austere environments. And hypothermia is predominant in austere medicine. Even if you, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, it's 40 degrees Celsius out. You have a casualty, a, a traumatic casualty, and you're, you're dealing with them and, and you're sweating. It's just, you're just sweating bullets and it's hot, that casualty is hypothermic because of the casualty. So hypothermia is, is everywhere. So this is a very important topic that we focus on in our nonprofit. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly with the, the work that we've been carrying in hypothermia, I think the more we understand about it, the more you realize how important it is. And again, something I've become to realize happens more and more often is that you don't have to be in a cold climate in trauma to have hypothermia do you it's it's something we see a lot of isn't it yeah anywhere any environment yeah you're going to have that that problem yeah so so with that in mind could, could you just really cover 
what, why you think uh, addressing hypothermia is, you know, maybe especially in trauma is, 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 is so important. Can, can you give us some of the background behind that, of, of the, the logic behind it? So hypothermia is not just an environmental injury. It's, it's, it's a traumatic injury as well. Trauma patients are at risk of hypothermia. It used to be the, the, the diamond of death uh, until uh, Ricky Ditzel came up and he added one more. So now there's four, um, four problems. And, and one of them is, is hypothermia as well as hypocalcemia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. But um, that, the, those four things just compound on each other. And if you do not deal with hypothermia, it will lead to hypocalcemia, acidosis, coagulopathy, which then adds to hypothermia and hypocalcemia and acidosis and coagulopathy. And you're spiraling down into the, the you know, to death, uh, to, um, to the, the abyss. And so one thing that we can do pretty easily with no um, medical kit at all is address the hypothermia. So we need ALS level uh, uh, drugs and, and, and tools and, and cool guys stuff to have to deal with the hypocalcemia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. The hypothermia, that can be treated by anyone, anywhere, anytime. And, and isn't that interesting? Um, and again, this backs up with some of the work we've been doing in, in the area as well, is that it's a, it's a very low scale to intervene, isn't it? I should say some of the the other areas we need to do, address the coagulopathy, well, <laughs> that's a big one for me this morning, and all the different changes in physiologies we're looking at can, can be a little bit more complex and, and quite higher scale. But you're right, keeping somebody warm is actually quite a low scale base, isn't it? Um, it is, and it's a first aid skill, and, mm -hmm. and it should be um, mastered at the basics level. And then as we get into more and more advanced training, as I'm, I'm a critical care paramedic, we, we still rely on those basic skills of warming the casualty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's fascinating stuff. And it's, uh, I can't agree more with what you're saying that it's such a simple skill, but I don't know if you, if you find it yourself, certainly in the UK, some of our statistics of actually transporting casualties to definitive care, we, we both military and civilian, a lot of our casualties are transported cold um, and, and the, the, the results aren't fantastic on, on the amount of people we 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 take to definitive care in, in in a either a cold stressed or a hypothermic state did you find that that's consistent in other, in other territories as well it is uh, definitely and, and working as a paramedic in quite a few different countries uh it's the whole scoop and run mentality is what's killing us we're like ah oh, well grand we, we i can see the hospital right i just scoop this guy up and and take him there we'll be there in 20 minutes and I don't have to worry about wrapping the casualty. Well, that's wrong. That's killing people. So the mentality that we have of, ah, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be there shortly is, is not a good medicine. So from the very beginning, you should, as you roll the casualty to assess the back, that you have to put something fluffy down underneath them to deal with hypothermia. Hypothermia should be addressed as soon as possible. And yes, we do with this an E when we do this uh, CABCDE, or, or if you're uh, tactical, we use March and, and H is the, the hypothermia and head injuries. So we're doing this after our uh, assessment of uh, airway breathing circulation, but perhaps we should think about it a little more aggressively. And if you can get them uh, wrapped up earlier than all the way down to, to the E assessment. Yeah, I think it's a, that, again, that's, that's a fantastic point. And uh, 
I know, I know there's various papers is out there. I haven't got them off to mind exactly to quote the papers in it, but they, they basically say it's an awful lot easier to prevent than it is to treat, isn't it? Um, and, and I know one of the things um, that when I ever have to teach the subject, I almost describe of that initial when you're doing that initial assessment, the heat of your casualty that, that the casualty has already got is, is a critical resource and you shouldn't lose it because once you lose it, you're going to have to get it back again. And that's going to take a huge amount of energy. We know boiling kettles and creating heat takes lots of energy. Well, the, the body's going to take energy to, to make it. But so it's, it's really interesting that you say that. And, and I think understanding if we lose that heat, it's going to be a really, really hard job to get it back again. So yeah, let, let, let's be more maybe aggressive isn't the word, but let's be more focused to, to maintain what that patient's already got for us, I think, as it's a commodity for us, I think. Yes. Uh, one, one place I have seen the aggressiveness of uh, dealing with hypothermia is working on the HEMS in, in Budapest. They wrap their, their stretcher, their, their um, scoop stretcher in bubble wrap like tons of bubble wrap, like like three meters, four meters of bubble wrap. And as we place the casualty on the stretcher, they immediately just wrap them up in bubble wrap and then tape it down. And it, it's, a, it's a brilliant option. It's, it's, it's not the best by any means, but it's better than nothing. And, and uh, I have not worked anywhere else where even working in uh, Alaska and, and Northern Canada, I've never seen an organization be as aggressive with hypothermia. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got a similar story in that when I was um, I had a meeting with Hils uh, Helsinki Fire Department in uh, in Finland, and and they were taking me through their their disaster response equipment, and uh, they were showing me various different stretches, and and it was really interesting how the the fire chief said this to me, and he says, and of course you can see all of our all of our stretches are pre-insulated, and they all had neoprene sheets on them, and nice. and then I thought. Of course. <laughs> and it seems so simple, doesn't it? To them, it was just like, it was cold in Finland, but even if it's not cold, you're going on an insulated base. Mm. And, and it's, it's, a, it's not something I'm going to have to do because everything becomes pre, everything's arriving with an insulating capacity already integrated into it. So that's interesting that there is a couple of organizations realizing that it's something it's actually integrated into their systems, isn't it? Um, and it's not something to be thought about. It's just, it just, it just happens. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. we need to integrate that aggressiveness in, mm -hmm. in every country, uh, yeah. no matter where you are. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. So just just moving on from the, the sort of the, the, the general outline of some of the areas we and of, of why we have to concentrate on hypothermia and why it's so important to contribute and to, to survivability. Could could you just give us a little bit of information on some of the work you've carried out on hypothermia and, and some of the monitoring techniques you've been looking at to, to enhance the sort of picture we get when, when we're dealing with this type of casualty? Um, sure. Just basing this off of research, we, we see that hypothermia, as we stated earlier just now, hypothermia is such an easy fix in the assessment progress, an easy fix to stop that uh, diamond of death to, to get a uh, spiral down out of control. So one, one of the benefits of running uh, the college is we can institute new concepts uh, immediately into our remote paramedic program, our masters of austere critical care program. So during scenarios, if, if one of the instructors or, or one of the students comes up with a new, hey, hey, how about, how would we try this? I don't know. Let's try it. And we have live casualties that are made up with uh, some of them are amputees, some of them are, and we get them all bloody. And we, we try this out and uh, with our prolonged field care, even though whilst we're in Malta, which is hot, 
so these casualties who are not really traumatic are they they're, they're they are getting cold because you're laying on concrete and and my paramedics my emts are, are um docs who are, who are in the master's program don't cop onto that fact and and being in the academic environment we can look at current research and then try out new concepts as well as come up with ways that work and don't work and and it was what I love about my job is I can have someone who's in a remote EMT program, doesn't know medicine to save their life. They did their 100 hours of online. They're coming for the six days of classroom and they're coming up with like weird, weird things. I'm like looking at this casual and like, who did this? What, what is this? You guys say, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I did this. No, that's brilliant. Let's try this. And we'll, we'll scientifically, try. okay, this patient gets it this way. This patient gets the other. Let's try it. So at the college, we're trying to push evidence-based medicine forward. And, and hypothermia wraps is every patient has this. So uh, what we've been pushing lately is how to wrap the casualty and still being able to assess. So we've come up with a pretty good way of, of getting all the kits and bits and bobs attached to the casualty run up to, uh, to the nape of the neck. So uh, you don't have to continually unwrap the casualty when you do your assessments. And so far, we've had some pretty good results. Um, nothing publishable yet because it's a case study anecdotal, but uh, we, we seem to be able to uh, wrap up the casualty and not have to unwrap them whilst we're doing uh, our, our critical assessments. No, I think, I think you've, again, you've picked up on such a good point, isn't it? Because um, you look at some of the techniques out there for dealing with uh, hypothermia and, and, and an injured person in hypothermia where you still need that access to them to, do, to, do, to keep your ongoing assessments. And an awful lot of the systems I find out there actually completely limit your ability to access your patients. Um, they might work if you've got a patient who, who maybe has had, had only exposure to hypothermia, maybe a hill walker or something who's not injured, and that's all you're dealing. But as soon as you've got injury involved, um, they basically restrict your ability to get into them, don't you? Um, and I think that's one of the problems I find, because if you've got restricted access, it becomes difficult and you tend to shy away from difficult things. So I think I always look at hypothermia uh, prevention of making sure the medic can still be a medic, but not releasing heat when you have to yeah. be the medic as well. It's quite a balance, isn't it? That is um, a challenge. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, it'll be interesting to get your thoughts. Um, when, when you're trying to get um, some of your vital signs out of your, your hypothermic patients, have you got any preferred methods? We, we had a conversation um, a couple of months ago um, from some of our cave rescue colleagues. And, and one of their problems was that a lot of the the assessments on, on sort of skin-based temperature could be variable given the environment they were working in. And they were looking like a whole body assessment. You know, you'd look at your numbers, you'd look at the overall state of the your patient, taking into account things like AVPU scales and things like that. And that was their approach. Have you found any sort of preferred methods for actually getting accurate temperatures at all or, or just trying to get a a good feel for where, where your patient is and any thoughts on that at all so yeah getting accurate temperature yeah. is yeah. difficult unless well come on it's it's rectal temperature isn't it i mean that's the evidence-based and in an austere environment i'm just not going to be doing that mm -hmm. uh with, with the pro probes that we have um and, and and with the hypothermia i'm not doing that because i'm going to have to expose them drastically to get the the rectal probe in to get the core temperature 
Uh, Tempanic is, is, has got some good research, but it's all done in a clinic where it's not cold. Mm -hmm. So Tempanic temperatures is just not accessible in hypothermic or, or environmentally cold areas because the, um, the ear is just going to be colder. So we have either under the tongue and if they're cold, they're shivering. So I'm not going to really want to put mm -hmm. something and, and if they're breathing and so we have pretty much gone with axillary on uh, attempts and there's some published uh, research out there. I put it on some of my LinkedIn articles that it's about 0 0.33 uh, uh, degrees Celsius colder than, than core temperature. I was always taught one degree difference. And then I did some research on a, an article I was writing, reading and, and, and the axillary temperature is, is pretty close to what you have. Okay. So what we're doing is we're, we're getting some high quality plants thermometers and the plant thermometer has this long wire lead with this metal probe we put that underneath the axilla tape it down and then uh, put the arm down so it stays in place and then you're running the lead up to the to the side of the head along with your bp cough and steth and and um, ecg everything else is right there mm -hmm. and we're finding that as a good way to get um, temperature now trending is probably more important than actual. So yeah, so people are going to say, oh, that's just bollocks. There's no way you're going to get core temperature with actually, you're right. You're absolutely right. Science shows it's about 0.33 degrees less, but even then I'm looking at trending because it's a plant thermometer. <laughs> it's, it's gonna, mm -hmm. It is not medical by any means. So we're looking at, all right, every five minutes, what is it? If, if it's dropping from whatever we started with, I'm losing cool points and my team sucks. Uh, but if I'm seeing an increase, then we're doing the right things. Yeah, I think that, that that's very interesting. And, and, and I think what I can bring out of that and, and the conversations we, we had with the, the cave rescue teams is that one, the trending is very important, isn't it? One individual you know, recording of the temperature it, it, that's just what it is, isn't it? But you need to see that trend. And I suppose it's not only using that observation in isolation, isn't it? It's trying to look at, because it doesn't sit on its own, does it? It's how the body's reacting as a whole. It's trying to look at every, all the other information coming at, at you, both from a, a vital signs point of view and uh, patient signs and symptoms, isn't it? It's trying to get that big picture. I think that's where we are because it does seem to be a very variable and difficult thing to do to get accurate temperature, doesn't it? It's, and, and I think you're right. The austere environment is different. It's it's it, There's a lot less control um, and there's a lot more, there's not sometimes just not the pure accuracy we'd get in the more definitive areas, I would think. It is, it is definitely a challenge, even mm. in the best of times, let alone uh, when, when you're dealing with mm. resource limited areas yeah yeah no that, that that's that's interesting and i think for anybody sort of looking to care for the hypothermic slash trauma patient that's probably I, I think a very good point to bring out as i say look at trends look at big picture and then then that will that that, that will drive your your overall care plan for, for that that patient slash casualty that that you're that you're dealing with no i think that that makes a lot of sense just just Staying on the hypothermia subject, um, have you got any experiences or story or stories of dealing with hypothermia that where you've learned a lesson that that you could possibly pass on at all that that might be of, of use to our listeners? I can I can definitely dwell on a situation I had in the mid '90s on the Special Forces uh, ODA. 
So we had uh, joint operations with the Canadian military and we, we parachuted into Northern Alberta and in, in, Jan in January, and it was minus 40 C, uh, which is also minus 40 Fahrenheit. It's minus, it's, and that's before you do wind chill. Um, and we were, we were there to fight the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. It's just fun to say that, <clears throat> PPCLI. And they're just normal infantry guys, right? So we, we invaded and we we're like, oh, this is going to be so easy. So we're just going to, we're going to land. And, and let me tell you, any countries out there that are, that are listening to this podcast that have a, even a slight idea of, of invading Canada, let me tell you, no, do not. <laughs> invade so i lived there for a year and 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 they're friendly aren't they they're just well known for being nice and they apologize all the, no 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 no. it's all a front my god do not invade these guys we got our arses kicked by normal infantry and it's just because it's minus four and we were on snowmobiles they were on snowmobiles we had sleds we have a whole bunch of of lightweight we call it lightweight equipment it was really heavy um, but we just bogged down and we got our arses kicked. And, and one of the guys on my team had moderate hypothermia. And we, well, that was the 90s. We didn't have a lot of cool guy stuff for, for hypothermia. We had goose down sleeping bags and bear suits. And so I put one, soup, uh, one sleep bag inside of the other, put this guy in there, stripped them off, put them in there. And oh, I was trying to assess them and I couldn't, minus 40, right? I couldn't open anything up. So I was stuck with, uh, okay, well, alert and oriented uh, times four times three, keeping, um, uh, getting, um, you know, mentation as basically the only way I could assess the guy, because I couldn't, I couldn't get access to anything else. And, and I, I didn't think about the BP upside down technique, which we learned since then. So that, uh, that was a, a big learning experience on um, hypothermia and, and anyone, um, I'm, I'm guessing Finland's the same way you mentioned Finland, don't invade Finland either, whatever you guys are doing that, cause you'll just die horrible death. So, um, it, it was just absolutely crazy, crazy cold. Um, thankfully now we have a lot more research, a lot more technology on how to deal with, um, hypothermia. I wish we had some of the kit that we have now back then and would have made my life a whole lot easier. Yeah, no, it's and, and you know again, it's that that that's I've got a similar story. Um few about 10, 12 years ago, I did a big expedition across Greenland. And um we we had a particularly hideous day. Um it was probably minus 50 plus. I think we got about minus 52 with winch. It was just extreme. And again, we had one of our team members starting to go down with hypothermia. But what I found in that scenario, um, when you're dealing and it doesn't always have to be that extreme because these are ridiculous temperatures uh, that not everybody has has to visit. But it's just you're you're you're, lim you're so limited about what you can perform as a human uh, because you cannot take your gloves off, um, and it's just everything becomes very very difficult. Um, so I think that that makes a huge amount of sense that when you're dealing with those in extremes everything the simplest thing becomes a challenge doesn't it um and there you've got a, a patient with hypothermia that you need to address and and uh, and uh, reverse that condition but what should be simple obviously becomes a bit more difficult doesn't it um so a very 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 interesting point uh, the big thing i suppose i learned from from my experience in, in ultra extreme cold temperatures was you've got to get some sort of shelter up as quick as possible uh, that was my biggest learning you can't do anything when you're outside um, and if you do you're going to lose 
Um, my, my biggest thing was we've, we've, we've got to get some environment that we can put some level of control in place. I don't know if that's something you've picked up at the, with, with your experiences as well. Definitely. Uh, having a Bothy shelter or having any, like back then it was just ponchos. Mm-hmm. So having, having a poncho, poncho liner up is, is just helps a little bit anyway. Mm-hmm. And now they again, technology has increased drastically. So now there's um, tons of different uh, easy pop-up type of shelters mm-hmm. that would make a profound bit of difference. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably something to, uh, we, we can feed back is if, if you think you're going to get somebody who's going to be exposed to environment, what is your shelter option? Because if you don't have that, I think you're going to be fighting a losing battle. Um, you've got to get them out of that environment pretty quickly, haven't you? Yeah. We, we have tons of uh, Bothy shelters in our uh, classroom in Malta, which everyone snickers at when we're like, you're, you're in Malta. Why are we teaching mm-hmm. Bothy shelters? Uh, because it saves lives. It, it, it's, as you know, as soon as you get under there, something happens. You just, I don't know, it's a mentality or mm-hmm. it actually does warm up super quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, which it does warm up super quickly because mm-hmm. after after 15 minutes you want out it's just uh, mm-hmm. so muggy and 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 uh, moist in there but mm-hmm. um so this so, this is also something that should be taught at, and is taught at the very basic level on words mm-hmm. no i think that makes a lot of sense i mean just then naturally moving on from that on on, on points that we we can provide to, to really assist people should they be dealing with in with hypothermia and isolation or or linked with trauma what would be maybe the, the sort of three key points that you would say, think about these, if, you know, if, if you go into an area that you could be faced with this type of, of, of casualty, what would be the three big points that you would, you would like to pass on? I, I think there's three different types of patient monitoring uh, that you can do with your kit that would be helpful. So uh, we talked about the plant thermometer, the having, having a thermometer with a wired probe under the armpit. Second is running your stethoscope underneath your BP cuff and uh, securing it with cling film to the arm and then putting your BP cuff upside down, running your steth underneath the BP cuff and then having everything led uh, to the, the shoulder. And you can get your BP using that method, it, uh, even though the steth is running underneath the BP. And the same with uh, yeah, the three lead ECGs. So now the ECGs are so small nowadays that w- they, they should be on every kit. So you place your three or four leads and run the leads up to the shoulder. So now you have your temp, you have your BP, you have your ECG all right there, right next to the shoulder, and you don't have to unwrap your casualty at all. Okay, now that, 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 that's, that's clever and, and, and makes a lot of sense. Can you just explain a little bit um, about the BP cuff upside down. What, what's the what's what's the logic be behind that and the stethoscope underneath it? Is that an is that access and insulation we're looking for there? Is is there any other any other logic logic behind that? It's just about the leads of the the, the device. Normally they go down because you're by mm-hmm. the side. Yeah. When you turn it upside down, the leads are going straight up the shoulder, mm-hmm. and then the steth goes underneath. So it just keeps it in place. Okay. You don't you don't have to put it underneath, but mm-hmm. uh, we always do, and it, it, we've never not been able to have uh, full assessment using that way. That makes a lot of sense. So again, I suppose at that point you've got easier access to it, um, and the, one of the other things we're always looking for it's secure, isn't it? So you don't have to keep faffing around to to keep repositioning, which which seems to make a lot of sense. You know that what strikes me on with with that technique, it's it's so simple. Um, 
but why 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 don't we do it as standard it's, it's an interesting one isn't it because it's something i've certainly never heard of but as soon as you said it it just makes an awful lot of sense doesn't it yeah and this is something we learned from one of our students one of our students we're we're, we're he's had him wrapped up and and he had it upside down i'm like what the hell are you doing what the oh mm. wait oh wait a minute mm. that's awesome yeah no very very good point um and I'm I'm, going to, I'm certainly going to be taking that one on board on on a on a personal level. Fantastic, no, that that's excellent. Just uh, as as a final question for our pod tonight, and we ask this to everybody who, who all of our guests who who come on the pod, um, and we we get some really interesting answers. But if you were to pick one piece of medical equipment that you would always take with you, what what do you think it would be? That's easy. It ultrasound. Ultrasound. ultrasound always okay. always always ultrasound right. always so um i did some quick research to just see what kind of ultrasound use there is in hypothermia there's some um mainly for um, permissive hyperthermia or for um, um heart attack uh, uh so this is in inside a a uh, icu using hypothermia as treatment uh, and they have much better ultrasounds we have but there's with with the technology we have nowadays with IQ Butterfly. I've got one of those. I've got a, a dual headed Chinese knockoff that costs what fifteen hundred bucks, and it's in my computer bag. It's with me everywhere. It's on a flight. It's on the train. It's 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 everywhere. It's in the classroom. It's it's. There's absolutely no reason why anyone from the EMT all the way up shouldn't have an ultrasound. In fact, you don't need a stethoscope anymore. The ultrasound can do so many things. And in our, in our Austere Ultrasound course, we teach the, the CABC. So during C, this is what you use ultrasound for, for IVC or for FAST exam. A, airway, this is what you're going to use your ultrasound for. You can do quick placement of your ET tube. Uh, B, breathing, obviously, ultrasound. You can see B lines. And, and, and absolutely, there, there, there's very little out there. You can't use an ultrasound. And you are losing cool points if you're a medic and you do not have an ultrasound on you. No, I think that, that that's that's a very good answer. I know um, it's sort of pre-hospital ultrasound wasn't about when when I was hands-on, but I know one of the things I would have certainly liked it for in, in my past, uh, especially when I used to, to to work offshore, was the acute abdomen uh, and, and making that call, especially at two in the morning when the weather's really in and it's dangerous to bring a helicopter out and you're purely relying on your you know your stethoscope and your hands to, to make your assessment and it was always a difficult call and i think just having something like that that could you, you could you could if you've got the telemedicine you you could one interpret yourself or, or pass that information across would, would certainly would have made my life an awful lot easier uh but no that that's that's a that's a that's a very interesting and, and, and logical answer. And um, it has been amazing over the, the series to, to listen to everybody's what would they take, and they've all been different. Uh, I think we will write a pod about what people have picked and the reasons why, because um, I, I think there's the, there's definitely a couple of posts we, we, we can do on that one. No, look, um, I that, that's absolutely been a, a wonderful conversation tonight. What, what I've got from that, um, from a hypothermia point of view, is that it's critical to maximising survival. It's not a nice to do. Um, I think what you've brought out is that actually to address it is one of the most simple things we can do. Um, it doesn't take a high degree of technical expertise to, to insulate somebody appropriately um, and, and to start addressing it. There's some very clever, simple things we can do to enhance our monitoring, as you've noted with the upside down stethoscope, um, having the ability to run ECG. Um, and, and correct placement and with just a little bit of thought can make our life so much easier which incrementally will, will improve 
what we do. And I, th I think that's a hugely important one. And also I think the important point you, we, we probably both brought out was, you know, if you're in an adverse austere environment, or even if you're not, and it's trauma and hypothermia, you need some sort of shelter up to, you know, to, to hold heat, to get you out of the place where it's not conducive to the patient and get you in, into a more controlled environment. I think that's the main points I've brought out from, from this evening. Is, is there anything else you would, you would say from that, that I, that I might have missed that, that are critical? I think practice. I mean, as a, as a critical care paramedic, I love focusing on the cool guy stuff, the RSIs and, and, the, and the minor surgery, all, all these cool things. And it's mm -hmm. the basics. The basics is what we need to practice. Mm -hmm. How long has it been since I've created a hypothermia app? Well, last time I taught EMT, which is, you know, six, eight months now. So I'm losing cool points because I haven't practiced the basics of hypothermia treatment in, in the last little bit. I need to do that. And everyone needs to do these basics, practice these basics, know them well, and that's what's going to make you different. Yeah, and I'm going to touch on just uh, just to to, to to really compliment your answer. Just just before we we did the podcast, we we had a small conversation, and we we talked about what makes exemplary teams. Um, and one of the things you picked up, and which you've actually written about, is that the best teams do the basics well, don't they? Um, and I think that's what you've just picked up there. Um, if you want to be in a, an exemplary team, absolutely nail your basics because uh, that, that that's your foundation to everything, isn't it? No, make makes a huge amount of sense. Look, uh, Abrix, thank you so much uh, for for your time this evening. That that concludes our um, our TSG talk for this evening. Um, if you would like to ask any questions um, about the subject tonight or some of the wider topics that we we cover. Um, a couple of places you can contact us, our website at tsgassociates.co.uk and our LinkedIn page is very active at TSG Associates. So please feel to ask any questions or contribute to the, the conversation we have as well. So, so thank you again for everybody for listening. Uh, we, will, we will be back soon with another unique subject and colleague and uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.